China's influence is rising, but how is that changing the countries around it? I'm Reed Standish, and this is Talking China in Eurasia, a podcast about how Beijing's rise is shifting the balance of power. China is turning on the diplomatic charm in Brussels, but can Beijing win back Europe? China and the European Union represent one of the largest trade relationships in the world. And just a few years ago, Brussels and Beijing were on the verge of bringing in a monumental trade pact. But since then, issues like Taiwan, Hong Kong, abuses in Xinjiang, and China's support for Russia amid the invasion of Ukraine have derailed the relationship. Now, Beijing has launched a charm offensive meant to mend fences with Brussels and repair the damage of the last three years. But can it work? Welcome to Talking China in Eurasia, a podcast from Radio for Europe that looks at how Beijing's rising influence is changing its neighbors and why it matters to you. I'm Reid Standish, and joining, to me, joining me today from Prague is Rekard Josiak, Europe editor at Radio for Europe, and our very own resident Brussels whisperer. On today's episode, we're trying to understand where Europe's relationship with China is headed and if Chinese diplomats can win back a continent that thoroughly welcomed it just a few years ago. We'll be exploring what's behind the Chinese charm offensive that's underway right now and how it's playing out in Brussels. We'll also be explaining how we got to where we are today and delving into some of the bigger moments that have shaped things between the EU and China in recent years. Rickard, I want to begin today's episode by getting into what this charm offensive really is, how it's being received in Brussels, and why winning over the EU is important for Beijing. This outreach from the Chinese is part of a shift that's been building since late last year. Uh, and lately, we've seen some very, very warm, welcoming statements from Chinese officials at forums like Davos. And we also know that Wang Yi, the former Chinese foreign minister who now oversees foreign affairs on the Politburo, is reportedly planning a Europe tour in February. So, Ricard, tell people what they need to know about what's going on right now. Hi, Reid. I hope you can hear me well. Uh, yeah, all good. Perfect, perfect. Thanks, Reid. Well, yeah, it's true that the Chinese are trying a bit of a charm offensive right now. They, I mean, they're coming off the, the party congress, obviously, and uh, slowly opening up after the latest COVID lockdown. So it's very much sort of uh, sending out feelers, let's say. But it's fair to say that right now uh, the EU is, well, sensing those feelers, but they don't really see crucial things yet coming forward. And that is essentially... Is there a daylight between uh, Russia and China right now over Ukraine? And so far, among those diplomats I've spoken to, they obviously recognize that Ch the Chinese at least are not, you know, for example, providing weapons to Russia. But on the other hand, they don't really see much else. I mean, they're for sure not going to be a sort of sanctions coming from Beijing on Russia. And also in his, he had public statements. They're not particularly encouraging from China either. So it's very much wait and see and see what Beijing are doing right now, emerging from this party congress they had late last year and also uh, this latest COVID lockdown they're coming out from. Uh, I mean, what's your sense on, I mean, how how strong, I mean, you say that it's a lot of putting out feelers. I mean, what do those feelers look like? And I mean... What what's the kind of reception that these feelers are are receiving right now in the halls in Brussels? Well, China finally got a new EU ambassador, and he's been very active recently, meeting pretty much everyone that is worth meeting in Brussels, and sort of sensing a bit on where where the different countries stand. Uh, it's also important, you know, to note that uh, they are shaping up towards there's going to be an EU-China summit sometime this year, so that will probably be 
sort of the, the proof of the pudding, so to speak. But right now, uh, the EU is looking at what China is doing with Ukraine. Ukraine is sort of the alpha and omega of, of all international relationships right now. It's a, it's, it's a war that very much is in the main focus of, uh, of EU's attention. And they look at various countries uh, what, in what they call the global south and see how they behave. China is, of course, the premier one with those. And uh, at, at the moment, it's, they, they are checking how China is doing things, how they are speaking. And so far, they haven't really seen any messages that would convince them that China would be a partner. You know that they have a very sort of uh, multifaceted relationship with China, sometimes a partner, sometimes a rival. In this case, they are still very much a rival. So, I mean, you, you're just giving us a snapshot right now of you know, what, what's the state of play today. But, uh, you know, if you can, I, I want to rewind here a little bit and let's 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 go back to December 2020 um, just to set the scene for everybody. OK, so Brussels and Beijing, they've just pushed through, you know, some tough negotiations and they signed this landmark trade deal that could turn them into one of the world's largest economic tandems. Uh, meanwhile, Joe Biden, he's just recently been elected president of the United States after four years of the Trump presidency that really left relations quite damaged between Washington and Brussels um, and also left a lot of, I think, people in the EU, you know, wondering, is, is Washington really the partner that they thought it was? So tell people, you know, what do they need to know about what took us from from this moment of this trade uh, pact, this crucial moment there to, to today? Essentially, uh, two things, I would say. Uh, one was, of course, as you mentioned in your, your question, the, the relationship with the United States. Um, I, I always like to think of the whole relationship. Uh, when you talk about Brussels, Beijing, you always have to factor in Washington, D.C. as well. It's, it is a bit like a triangle. Right now, that Brussels-Washington uh, bilateral a transatlantic link is very strong. But if we wind back, go back uh, during the Trump era, and this was the very end of the Trump era in 2020, uh, the transatlantic link was severely damaged after four years of, of uh, the Trump administration. And even came so far that, that uh, the EU foreign policy chief at the time, Borrell, said that, you know, we, we want to be some sort of equidistance between uh, Washington and Brussels. Uh, so, so at that point, very much, the EU was looking to China, especially when it comes to sort of green energy and green politics, which is something that's at the very heart of what, what Brussels wants to do as well. And then, of course, something, of course, there was a change of administration that was a bit more pro-European in Washington. But the other main thing was, of course, uh, how China behaved during the, the COVID. And, uh, and here, uh, it really somehow damaged relations as well in the beginning. In the beginning, they thought that that China was something of a friend, you know, providing um, essential um, products and so on, that things that the Europe didn't really uh, produce anymore. Uh, but what really dawned upon the Europeans, I think, very much uh, with the uh, COVID breakout was basically how little things are being produced in Europe and that Europe also needs to cut its uh, supply chain, uh, close them, actually, basically, in a sense, uh, make them shorter. So that, is, that was another big thing that, that came to the fore as well. Of course, you have all the human rights relation things as well. We had Hong Kong, we had Xinjiang and so on. So it, it was a whole palette of things where uh, the EU suddenly took notice that maybe we aren't in sort of equidistance between Washington and, and China. And at the same time, uh, sorry, equidistance between China and Washington. And at the same time, 
Washington under the Biden administration also moved closer to the European Union, had it struck a friendly relationship with the key European Union member state, Germany. So, so it moved, the European Union very much moved from being somewhere in the middle between Beijing and Washington at that time to very much being part of, you know, reforming the Western alliance that become even stronger now with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Right. I mean, obviously, you know, as you know, you've alluded to before this, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, this is the, you know, the big factor, the key thing here that that's really been shaping things, especially for the last year. Um, you know, and well, I think it's safe to say that, you know, China's relationship with Russia and how China's navigated the war, I think that's certainly damaged the the wider dynamic between uh, you know, Europe and China. But, you know, at the same time, we've also been seeing these comments from European leaders throughout the last year, you know, saying things, you know, China has a role to play in ending this war. We've seen comments about, you know, that China is is the country that can bring Russia to the negotiating table. Um, you know, we see these always pop up here and there. You know, you see things like Olaf Scholz goes to Beijing. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm really curious, you know, because obviously when we talk about Brussels, we talk about the EU, we're really talking about 27 different countries. So what are you hearing from your sources? And, and you know, what's your sense about how this Russia-China relationship um, is viewed, you know, within this, you know, wider European-Chinese dynamic we're getting into? No, of course, you're, you're perfectly right. I mean, the EU consists of 27 member states, as you say, and they have different relationships with China. I mean, China is a major investor in Europe, and you can't deny that fact that you know, economically speaking, people are looking for Chinese investment still. That, that, that's a plain fact of it. And you see that in many countries. And that's why the EU has to be having this wide palette of seeing uh, the, the Chinese relationship. But yes, you're, they are a partner sometimes. Yes, they are an investor. And maybe we can rely on them in some international relations as well. I want to go back a little bit as well and, and consider that I think the Chinese are very much looking into the uh, US-EU relationship going forward. I mean, we are one year and a bit to, to the next uh, US presidential elections, and they are looking at every little kink in that relationship as well. Uh, recently, you saw a pretty nasty spat between uh, Washington and Brussels when it came to the IRA, this uh, Inflation Reduction Act, and the fact that, that in the beginning that the EU firms could not benefit from this multi-billion act. And sort of like, was there a, perhaps a little bit of a trade war going on there between uh, Washington and Brussels again? Of course, you just had the midterm elections in um, in the United States as well, where you have now a Republican House. The Republicans are much more hawkish, uh, not only on China, but even a bit on Europe as well. So, of course, the Europeans are looking nervously at what can happen in the United States and also sort of hedging their bet as well. You know, maybe the Chinese will come back into the fore. Uh, there is constantly, as I said, they, the Europeans are stuck in the middle uh, between China and, and Americans, sometimes quite literally. And they are nervously looking at what can happen with the United States. Will the United States be as supportive as they've been so far uh, when it comes to Ukraine? Or will they start sort of sinking into themselves again uh, as they enter the election period? So, so that sort of thing is also something. So there is, of course... Uh, an interest to 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 look at the China relationship again going forward. It will not happen right now, but they are looking into how China will play in the next few months, I would say, especially when it comes to Ukraine. Will there be daylight between Moscow and Beijing as well? So far, there isn't. But if the Chinese would put daylight there, I do think that you will have 
receptive capitals in, in, in the EU, uh, basically nudging the Europeans to perhaps um, maybe not put out a hand, but, but uh, look into uh, a, perhaps a deeper relationship with Beijing again. Oh, that's very, very interesting. I, I have a few follow-ups here, but before I, I delve into those, I just want to you know, say something to everyone who's listening live right now. So if you have a question that you want Ricard and myself to, to answer, you can raise your hand here or feel free to send a message either to myself or to the main Radio Free Europe account. Um, okay, so having said that spiel, um, we look forward to your questions. Ricard. I mean, you, you talk a bit there about, you know, if there can be any kind of daylight, right? Which I think is the, the big if we're talking about here, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, we have seen um, perhaps some attempts at this or, you know, early kind of, you know, feelers about, about what this could be like. Um, you know, I think there was an article earlier this month in the Financial Times where there was some, you know, interesting uh, anonymous comments, but coming from senior Chinese officials, you know, calling Putin crazy talking about how the view in Beijing is that, you know, Russia is going to lose this war, it's going to emerge from it as a minor power. And also, I think trying to get through this fact to dispel any idea that the Chinese actually knew that Putin was planning to uh, invade Ukraine in advance, which obviously, you know, Putin came to Beijing uh, at the beginning of the uh, Winter Olympics in February 2022, which, um, you know, there's been a lot of sort of various reports that have come out that perhaps, you know, the, the Chinese had some kind of inkling that something was coming in advance. So we're seeing that there is a bit of a, you know, an, an, an effort to kind of uh, stall some of that off before there. But my question is, I mean, what would, what is daylight? I mean, do you get any kind of sense about what that would be? Like, I, I know in the, the comments we've seen from, from your EU officials so far, you know, it's things like, okay, there's, there's still a long ways to go. We're not there yet. China first needs to kind of rehabilitate its image before we can get it even get into that conversation but you know do you give people help them understand what what would be daylight what would be a realistic version of that I, I think the one thing that really irks the European officials I would say especially in in the light of, of the Ukraine war is that the Chinese still sort of put some sort of moral equivalence between the Ukrainians and Russian actions uh, I think what they would like to do, like to see from China, is that they actually, uh, you know, call less on both sides to stop and actually recognize that this is an invasion where one country has, um, in a sense, uh, violated, well, they have violated the territorial sovereignty of an independent state. So basically for the Chinese to recognize the, uh, the severe, uh, I would say, oversteps of international law, that would be a good starting point, because still right now, the, the Chinese are somehow saying, well, you know, it's two, two parties at war, Let, let's just aim for peace. But they're not really sort of pointing out who's to blame for that. But if they, in a diplomatic, elegant way, can talk about, you know, the territorial sovereignty of, of Ukraine, talk about that there, has been, uh, that there has been violations of international law, that would be a, a signal to, to Brussels that the Chinese potentially are ready to be more serious about this. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. I guess there's a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a lot of skepticism right now. I think that's, that's pretty fair to say. Um, I'm going to, all right, let's, let's pivot here. This is a question from uh, Marie-Claude. I think that, that gets into a bit of what you're talking about. So she asks, um, when the war in Ukraine finally comes to an end, the country will need to be rebuilt and Europe will likely end up funding lots of the reconstruction. Would China be interested in being part of this uh, part of this effort, and is this something that Brussels would even want? I mean, obviously, you know, 
who knows when this war ends, what the kind of scenario that looks like. But I mean, this is something that I, I hear circling quite a lot of, you know, would the Chinese be part of anything like that? I mean, Rickard, do you get any kind of sense? I know we're getting into a world of a bit of a speculation here, but um, do you get any kind of sense that this is something that Brussels would would welcome? Hard to say, because I mean, I, I um, and I think many in Brussels are ready for a long war. I mean, that's going to stretch well beyond this year and possibly even into next year. Of course, I'm also speculating right now. But what I know for sure is that the European Union, when the war is over, will look to be sort of like the one humanitarian power that helps uh, Ukraine. And I think, in a sense, that they will have these sort of uh, donors conferences that they already now have. And, and I don't think really they will be in a position to say no to, uh, you know, other money than dollars and, and euros. I mean, they will welcome pretty much anyone to help because it's going to be an enormous bill for the European Union to foot. And I don't think they can do it alone. I don't even think the West can do it alone in the end because this is a, a devastating war. So my inkling is that they would probably welcome uh, money from China as well. But we are very much in a, in a land of speculation on this one. Right, absolutely. And, and I think also another part of this is, you know, what does China want to do? I mean, obviously, I think a lot of people in their minds are, you know, are associating things with Belt and Road, you know, the last 10 years, you know, the hundreds of billions of dollars into infrastructure that the Chinese have funded. But I mean, especially when you look at the stats on Belt and Road, we've seen it drop off quite a lot in the last several years, even leading up to the pandemic, but especially now. I mean, the Chinese economy uh, is slowed down quite a lot. It's a different type of economy than it was 10 years ago when Belt and Road was first launched. Um, so it's just also the Chinese don't have the same amount of money and capital sitting around that they would want to pour in. Um, but yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. We don't know what that, what that world looks like uh, you know, a few years down the road. It's also um, worth, really, if I can just yeah, please, well, please. It's, it's worth, it's worth uh, you know, reminding as well that the, the main a, um, sort of reconstruction effort when it comes to Ukraine it will obviously be, be its EU accession path, right? Because uh, one of the main things that the EU did last year was to actually make Ukraine a, a candidate country to want to join the European Union in the future. And, and the way they see the reconstruction is to little by little, sector by sector, actually welcome the European Union into the, the internal market and so on. So, so that effort as well is, is, is going to be interesting to watch. But in the same time, you know, like, like every sovereign country uh, are welcoming FDI, wherever it's from, really. And, and the EU is not in that position to, you know, pro prohibit uh, Chinese funds from entering into Ukraine. Right. And absolutely. I mean, I, I know the, the China-Ukraine relationship is a very complicated, interesting one. You know, obviously one that's suffered a lot because of, you know, China and Russia's close relationship. But I mean, the Ukrainians have a strategic uh, partnership that they signed with, uh, you know, the Ukrainians several years ago. Um, you know, throughout the war, I think it's been quite interesting. There's been a lot of Ukrainian outreach to the Chinese, which hasn't been that warmly received. I think it's quite important to note that uh, President Zelensky still, despite trying, has not managed to have a phone call with Xi Jinping um, after one year of this war. So I think that also maybe indicates a bit of how the, the Chinese could be seeing Ukraine moving forward. But I also know the Ukrainians are keen. They, they haven't been that critical openly, at least the presidential administration, because I think they don't want to you know, burn any kind of bridge that they don't need to. Um, okay, I'm going to pivot to another question that we got in here. This one comes from 
Yvonne. I think that ties into what you're talking about earlier about Belt and Road, because obviously, uh, was it a year ago? I think it was last fall, the European Union announced uh, Global Gateway, which was supposed to be their answer to China's Belt and Road Initiative. Um, it looks like the EU, Yvonne asks, it looks like the EU is trying to launch its own rival to fund infrastructure around the world. What's going on with that project and can it actually work? Uh, Rickard, what would you say? How would you describe Global Gateway to people and how does it factor in uh, in relation to China's Belt and Road? Yeah, so the EU Global Gateway is the EU answer to the Belt and Road. Of course, it's the two things that goes against that one. Uh, or three, I would say, actually. One is um, the money. Uh, we are talking about billions here that the European Union hoped to generate uh, within the next sort of three or four or five years. But that's in the realm of billions. What the Chinese already have done with the Belt and Road is investing trillions. The second thing is that Chinese got a head start of about what, five to 10 years already. There are certain projects that the EU is starting to, to, to sort of fund by the Global Gateway already right now. For example, an underwater cable connecting North Africa to, to the European Union, for example. And the third thing is as well that, it, it, you know, the European Union is a... a a very legalistic structure. They need to abide by rule of law uh, and they need to do things uh, according to the book, by the book. Uh, and that takes longer. That means that they need to fulfill certain other criteria that a, an authoritarian regime like the Chinese don't really need to think about. They can muscle in, they have sharp elbows and come into any, I mean, essentially any country uh, in the global south, let's say, and say, well, you are going to invest here and, we, you know, and that, that's it. The European Union is much more receptive to human rights, local conditions, and so on. Uh, and then maybe a fourth one as well that sort of chimes into that. I mean, there is a, there's still a sort of colonial um, hangover when it comes to the European Union. The European Union is very reluctant to really sort of barge in into sort of former colonies. Again, you know, they, they still have that sort of uh, uh, colonial hangover that shouldn't really, that makes them a bit more reluctant to just go back and try to dictate things again. I mean, that is something that is a bit of a stigma still. Of course, it's different with different countries and ex-colonies and so on. But that also goes against the, you know, the, the global gateway, I would say as well. So, so uh, you know, I, it's interesting, it's going to be interesting to watch the global gateway going forward, but I really don't think they can challenge the Belt and Road anytime soon. Well, I, I think an interesting dynamic about that is, I mean, this is a thing I've often often heard when I've been in different countries, you know, whether it's, you know, across uh, Europe or in Central Asia. I mean, as much as there is, I think, a lot of apprehension about these Belt and Road projects, and certainly there's been a lot of problems as we're talking about, you know, corruption, environmental issues, things like that. But there's still a reputation that China delivers with these things. I mean, stuff gets built. Um, maybe it's not always built as, as well as it could have been, but it, things are getting built and there is a, a track record of actually delivering. And I think that's a bit of, you know, whether it's been Global Gateway or even just a few years ago, you know, we had at the G7, there was talks from the Biden administration, perhaps working with the Europeans, the Japanese and the Indians to try and also fund something like this thing they call the blue dot network or there's been a few different names they've rebranded it over the years but you know it's a lot there's a lot of talk that comes from the west about this but actually it, it's not really delivering a bit and I, you know i'm curious because i mean as much as people there, there is this kind of interesting dynamic to to how china is is behaving you know and i could say yes it is maybe perhaps an 
you know, it's an autocratic uh, country run by a communist party, and perhaps it's not always so nimble, nimble pivoting on the ground, but it, it has managed to to deliver and give results um, quite a lot. So I, I, I'm curious, you know, Ricard, I mean, what about kind of that, that reputational stuff? I mean, I think that's another big part of when we're talking about funding infrastructure and something like the European Union competing with China is there is a bit of an issue of, you know, brand recognition. You know, I always think of in the Balkans, you know, there's surveys when people ask, you know, who's who's building the stuff and investing in your country? And it's the Russians and it's the Chinese, where in reality, it's disproportionately the European Union, but that doesn't really register in people's minds in the same way. So, I mean, is there is that is that a big part? Is that on is are, are people in Brussels aware of this? Are they trying to combat it? Yeah, no, but exactly. You're, you're pointing in exactly the right direction. It comes everywhere. It even comes within the European Union, I would say. I mean, the EU is um, a massive cash cow that finance so much. I mean, both in countries, you know, wanting to join the European Union, potential candidate countries in the Western Balkans, in the sort of eastern neighborhood within the EU, new member states like, like in Czech Republic, where we are, for example. I mean, the EU is financing a lot, lots of roads, railway, everything, but they're just really, really bad at selling it. You know, that, that's the sort of thing. They, they do a lot of stuff. They, the EU is throwing a lot of money and they're doing good stuff as well. Uh, but somehow uh, they, it, they, it just ends up being a PR disaster or no PR at all. So, so that is the problem as well. Of course, there's then the other thing as well that, you know, the EU, as I said, they do things by the book. That means that they're slower. That means that it's more bureaucracy and red tape. So, so it's not always sort of very elegant about it either. So that's the sort of thing. It takes time, and and then they're very good, very bad with the PR, and that that is a big problem. Right, and and I mean, I think this is, as you said, it's it's, it's the perennial problem for for the European Union. It's not just present here in this, uh, you know, when it comes to dealing with with things related to China. Um, so we have a, another reader question here. I think this is from. Walid, um, he's asking, will human rights have any factor in Chinese EU diplomacy? Um, well, I mean, I, obviously part of how the uh, EU trade agreement that we were talking about earlier, how that got suspended was due to, you know, sanctions that were placed on uh, Chinese officials over rights abuses in Xinjiang over the, you know, camps targeting um, Uyghurs and, and Kazakhs and Kyrgyz and other Muslim minorities there. Um, and then, of course, then the Chinese responded with sanctions in, of their own, uh, targeting European lawmakers and academics and a big group. And that, of course, left this agreement on ice. So, I mean, to answer partly your question already, Walid is, I mean, it, it, is, it is already a big part of it. And it's kind of central to getting this trade pact. Um, you know, resuscitated if it's ever possible. But I mean, Rickard, are there any future battlegrounds or, or, or other things that you think that uh, that people should be aware of there? No, Reid, I think you covered it well. I think as long as the European Parliament, which is sort of the moral conscience of the European Union sometimes, and as long as they have to approve any trade deal, which they do, that's their sort of one of their few big foreign policy instruments. Uh, and they still are under sanctions, so some MEPs are under uh, sanctions, Chinese sanctions, they will not approve that deal, right? And uh, so that is the sort of thing. But no, I mean, they, they will continue to look at what, uh, what the Chinese are doing with the Uyghurs, for example, monitoring what's happening in Hong Kong. And I think increasingly also how, how the Chinese are behaving uh, in um, East Asia, basically, with other neighbors, 
uh, I think there is an increased, I would say, awareness and also solidarity around Europe in many EU member states when it comes to the plight of Taiwan, for example. So, so human rights is there. It might not always be the, the main centerpiece, but it's an irritant for the Chinese and a bit of a blowtorch for the Europeans that will continue to, to shape the relationship. Uh, you brought up Taiwan there, which I think is a really interesting thing. Um, and, I, and I think if, if we can say, you know, I think basically the story of the rise of China in the world is, is tied to the story of, uh, you know, Taiwan losing a lot of diplomatic standing, losing its seat at the, at the UN, at the UN Security Council, you know, getting pushed out of organizations and, you know, not being recognized by the vast majority of the world, especially, you know, countries in Europe, the United States, you know, big powers in the West and elsewhere. But I think in the last few years, there has been quite a push of Taiwanese diplomacy, especially in Europe. Um, I mean, Ricard, you and I both know, I mean, the Taiwanese foreign minister, Joseph Wu, was here in Prague, um, you know, at the end of 2021. That was part of a broader European tour where he was welcomed in the, the Baltics, especially the Lithuanians, um, which, of course, have their own role with Beijing over over issues relating to Taiwan. But I'm curious if you can get in a little bit. I mean, is there anything you can really add about, you know, some of the the gains on the ground and, you know, maybe what is the diplomatic game that Taiwan is playing here with the EU um, vis-a-vis China? Yeah, I think this is very much tied to to the Ukraine question. I think these sort of things goes very much hand in hand. Uh, And I I mean, of course, Taiwan is scoring some important diplomatic victories, I would say, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, because there the whole Ukraine war resonates much stronger as well. And these are also largely speaking, smaller countries which are very much afraid of this might is right. But I think that looking at the Ukraine war, one thing that, that has really sort of, sort of a bit awakened in Europe is the fact that, well, you know, we actually have to stand up a bit against authoritarian regimes in a completely different way. We, we sort of, in a sense, misread Russia and its intentions. And we have to make sure that, you know, when there are other big countries that are overstepping the mark, that, that we actually let them know. That sort of that sort of idealistic view of things, the sort of human rights view of things, the, the whole thing about you know standing up for smaller countries that I, I thought in in the last few decades maybe sort of were sort of smashed aside a bit for for you know economic gains in a sense is coming back to the fore. I think we very much see in many European countries a move back to a bit more of a sort of moral foreign policy again. So, so, and that's very much tied to the, uh, some of the conclusions, I think, when the European countries have drawn to, drawn off the, of the Ukraine war so far, that it is actually worth fighting for uh, some of the ideals that you, uh, you, you say you support, but it's actually worth sort of backing those words, the words up with actual action as well. So I think uh, the Taiwanese could be in a bit of a role right now, especially in Central Eastern Europe, and get some bit more of a, you know, I wouldn't say recognition, but uh, some some diplomatic support in certain ways. Um, I think we're going to have to maybe get into the the later end of our discussion here, unfortunately. But a reminder to anyone listening, if you do have a question, uh, please drop it in quickly and we'll get to it uh, if we have time. But Rickard, maybe one thing to, you know, it, that got me thinking. I mean, you talk a lot about, you know, the lessons learned from Russia. Okay, what did we miss with the Russians? We misread things like that. That's very much, I've heard that refrain a lot from various people across Europe in the last year. But then at the same time, I mean, I, 
you follow the discussion happening inside Germany right now, which is really the, the big wheel of the European economic engine. Uh, the Germans were a big part of pushing for, uh, you know, this EU-China trade deal in the first place. And despite all these human rights concerns, despite, you know, supply chain issues that COVID set off, despite things of, you know, forced labor from Xinjiang and, 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 that, and things of that, like, um, you know, there still is this big push. German industry wants to be doing business in China. And it's not just German industry, other big countries, too. I mean, you can even say this about, you know, big American corporations. So, I mean... I, I guess you're, you're sort of talking about there's there is this moral push, but it seems there is still this this deep tension that, um, you know, as much as that we have maybe turned one one corner, there's an even sharper one lying ahead. Um, but I, but I'm curious a little bit how you how you see that. I mean, you're absolutely right, uh, Reid. I mean, of course, that there is on the one hand, there is sort of like a bit of a moral awakening in, in certain parts of Europe, in many parts of Europe, even in Germany, I would say. Sometimes it's worth reminding us that, uh, you know, it seems that the German government is very much divided on the issue as well, and that the German public is very much waking up to this to a certain extent as well. But yes, of course, I mean, we are probably, it looks like the European Union is sort of surviving this winter quite well. I'm thinking about, you know, energy issues, but also inflation and so on. But everyone is also scared about the upcoming winter, and that's when it really going to be a test for Europe. And we have to remember that, yeah, money talks, and, and, and the European Union has had a quite quite a few hard years right now i mean we we you know it's the ukraine war right now where we just come back from covid and before that was the financial crisis and so on so it's crisis after crisis and at some point um you know unemployment will start to rise again inflation is rising uh, the european union must look for investment they must look for money uh, so in the end i think we can might very well turn our back or the european union might turn its back on the more idealistic foreign policy and basically just realize that, well, the, the cold hard realism is that uh, we're not growing as much as we should. We have massive unemployment, the streets are talking, and we need to think more about, uh, you know, narrow economic interests again, because people need bread on the table. That's always been the case, and that can be the case in the future as well. The next winter will be the one that decides that, I think. Right. And, you know, getting back to this Chinese charm offensive, I mean, Maybe EU officials are, are skeptical now, but let's see how skeptical they are of this 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 pitch of you know rebuilding uh, relations and you know trying to uh, slingshot on you know the Chinese uh, economic reopening and, and and things like that. Yeah, we should come back to this thing exactly one year from now in January 2024 and see how this right then you know, <laughs> with uh, with uh, you know an upcoming uh, American election and so on and a very tough winter that we we will see right and a, probably a war still raging. I think back then we'll, if we go look forward a year. It will be very curious to see you know where where the Chinese EU relationships are. I think they might be a bit warmer than they are today. Yeah, um, I, I definitely. We're going to have to. There's a lot to watch and a lot to keep our eyes on. So, Rickard, um, we're going to have to end it there. Um, thanks again for making the time to join me. Um, and to everybody listening, thank you. Uh, this conversation is available on Radio Free Europe's site. And you can also subscribe to Talking China in Eurasia and other Radio Free Europe podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever else you like to listen. I'll be back in two weeks' time. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to my China and Eurasia newsletter, which comes out every other Wednesday. Until next time, I'm Reed Standish.